0: Father, we love You, we're delighted to gather together as the body of Christ and to sing praise to Your holy name. We're delighted to open Your Word and to look into the treasures that lay within. We do pray that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our eyes, that we may may behold wondrous things from Your law, as the psalmist declares. May that be true of us this morning, and Father, may we give You much glory. May we bring you much honor and joy as we have come here to set our hearts and our minds on things above, not on the things of this earth or things below. Father, there's so much going on in the world right now that would give us great anxiety and distress, frustration, and even anger. So, Father, thank you that we're able to come together as a family of believers at this time to be refreshed, to be encouraged to be refilled, recharged, so that we can continue to persevere in the name of Jesus in this life, in this walk that You've called us to. Help us to run the race with joy. Father, please bless us now and bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, all right. Well, last week we began our study in John chapter 15 as we're working our way through the Gospel of John. And we considered the topic of fruitfulness, fruitfulness. I only covered three verses, and uh, we're going to go back and kind of briefly summarize those and then move forward. My goal today is to look at the first eight verses of this chapter. A little bit of it will be review. But you know, I never uh, used the term or even thought about fruitfulness as a non-Christian before I was in Christ. I probably never used that word even once. I think that might be something that is one of those Christianese words, though it's thoroughly biblical, I just don't know that I ever even necessarily thought about it. And, uh, you know, I think about as I reflect on my life before Christ, this might not be true of everyone, but for me it certainly was. My life was a wreck. You know, my life, I was good at messing things up, and uh, frequently my life was a disaster, and that's what I am capable of. In fact, that's a high probability for me apart from Christ. And I'm, you know, very, very willing and happy to even confess that I must have Christ. Apart from Him, I can do nothing. I will fail, falter, self-destruct. And so, thank you that my Savior is holding me closely. But, you know, I looked around at other people's lives, and I remember there was one gentleman in particular, a young man of God, a Christian, that uh, by God's providence, uh, our lives intersected and I, I would watch him and I would think man I wish I was like that guy and I just remember at one point almost being in tears because I knew where my life was at and I heard stories about this guy and the kinds of things that he was involved in and the way that he impacted other people's lives for good and I saw how he would try to reach out to me in love and encourage me and I just thought, that's amazing that's amazing I want to be like that so Though I didn't know what fruitfulness was necessarily, I wouldn't have called it that. I was observing that in someone else's life and recognizing that it was something I desired to have. Now, when I came to know Jesus, I began to desire growth and change, and I began to believe that I actually could. That in Christ, my life could change. I could be different. I could be better. I could have a fruitful life to the glory of God and for the good of those around me. Because for so many years, my life was a path of destruction, not just for myself, but for anyone who got too close to me. And I know that a number of people in here can resonate with that. They can relate. They understand that. And so for the first time, I began to understand that I could change, I could be different, that God could work in me and I could bear fruit for the glory of God. And I began to experience the fruits of righteousness in my life, the fruits of living a, f- a faithful life before God. Fruitfulness is critical in the life of the believer. Fruitfulness is critical in the life of a believer. It's a necessary reality. It's a necessary reality. And Paul prays for the Christians in Colossae, and he says this very thing. He says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, and being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul prayed that the Christians there would walk worthy. That's a phrase that is found a few times in the Bible, and it actually, the word worthy is axios in the Greek, and it speaks of uh, scales in proportion to. And so when we confess or profess Christ, then our life ought to look like it. It ought to measure up, so to speak. Our life ought to be consistent with our profession Paul's prayer for them, and he says that in so doing, you will be pleasing to God and that you will be fruitful in every good work. Man, that sounds good to me. That sounds real good to me. I talked about this last week, obviously, and I said I know that I desire a fruitful life, and I know that you do too. I know that as Christians, we desire greatly to walk in holiness and to have fruitful lives, to glorify God. And I think oftentimes we have more discouragement because we desire it so much, yet we see just how far we fall. And we compare ourselves to other people. We see who we really are, and we see everybody else's well-manicured kind of picture or portrayal of their life, and we think, wow, woe is me. I am just not, I don't measure up. And it, it, it's a struggle for us, because God puts within us this desire to please Him and to be fruitful And praise God that we are oftentimes fruitful, and I don't even think that we recognize it. I think that we come down on ourselves real hard and fail to see what God is actually doing. But praise God, we will be fruitful. God is committed to that. He's committed to it. And so we're going to look at this today, and we're going to consider three aspects of Christian fruitfulness. Now, I know this sounds pretty similar to last week's message. It's, there's, you know, a lot more to it. I only made it through three verses. We're going to attempt to hit eight this week. And so, uh, it, in some ways, is a little bit of a review, but um, I kind of want to look at some of these things from a different angle than we did last week and then move a little further into the text. So, we're going to consider three things, three things today as we work through these eight verses. The certainty of fruitfulness... The certainty of fruitfulness because of the sovereign work of the Father. The Father is committed to our fruitfulness. He will have us be fruitful, like it or not. And I know that we desire that and be of good cheer because God the Father is committed to it. You can be certain that you will be fruitful in Christ. The second point, the source of our fruitfulness. It is found in union with Christ alone. He is the source. When we are in Christ and Christ is in us, you can take it to the bank. You will produce fruit. But apart from Him, you can be as certain you will not. And the third point, the goal of our fruitfulness is for God's glory and our assurance. God's glory and our assurance. You guys ready? Let me get an amen. Come on. Are you ready? Amen. Okay. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and look at our text. John 15, uh, verse 1, this is the, the certainty of fruitfulness. Verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now Jesus uses this very familiar metaphor of the vine and the branch to illustrate our union with Him. He says He is the vine, we are the branch. If we are in Him, then there will be fruit, because He is the source, He is the life. And so this is the doctrine of union. You've heard me talk about it a lot. It's a crucial Christian doctrine. We are in Him, and He is in us by the Holy Spirit Our lives are bound together with Christ. His accomplishments become our accomplishments. They are true of us. And all good things flow to us from Him by the Holy Spirit, and we produce fruit. We must be in Christ. So, I did a little bit more research on this. I mean, this stuff's not rocket science, but I don't know anything about vineyards and vines and branches except for what I just said. So we have a brother in the church who has some vineyards, and so I went and looked at his vineyard this week. If we could look at some of these pictures. All right, so sorry if it's a little hazy there, but obviously there's no fruit on this. You know, it's just the time of year that we're in, so there was only so many good pictures I could get. But this is relevant to our study today, because these would be the branches. Now these are, you know, they would call them shoots. It's a shoot, right? But uh, this would be kind of the idea of the, the branch, and so here is the, the vine. There's so much that I could get into, but it's just not really relevant, so I'll try to hold it together. I learned a lot. And so uh, as you can see, the, the branch is connected to the vine here. If we could go to the next picture. Now this right here, there are those shoots right there we were just looking at. They've been pruned off. They've been pruned off. So someone just came through and clipped all of them off. And there they are laying on the ground. And so what is going to happen to those? Well, they're already fruitless. But what they will eventually do is gather them up and burn them. Now, they don't do that so much anymore. So now these are laying on the ground. They're just going to till over them and they'll go back into the dirt. But that's, again, not very relevant to our study. What's cool about this is that this is just the first pass. And so there are so many branches that the... Pruners have to come through and prune, and they have to move through very quickly. I don't have pictures, but there's a second pass that they will do where they will clip it down even lower, but the people that requires a greater level of skill at this point, because they really want to determine which way the shoots are going to grow and where the bud breaks will be. So it takes great skill, care, and precision to prune these things adequately, and I thought that is amazing. I feel like that really speaks to the Father's care for the branch. Uh, If you want to go to the next picture, that's kind of the bundle on the ground, uh, just kind of a close-up of that, and I think that does it for now. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a picture of the idea of what we're talking about, and that will kind of be relevant to our study as we move a little further into it. There's another picture that I will show, actually, probably here in just about 30 seconds. So, this is the metaphor. It's it's very simple. It's supposed to be. Uh, Jesus was a master teacher, and He would use very simple metaphors to help us understand what He's trying to communicate. Jesus, it appears, has just left the upper room. So, recall they were at... um, This is called the Upper Room Discourse. They were there at the Passover meal, the Last Supper, what we often refer to it. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. You're familiar with all of this. Well, the last verse of chapter 14, Jesus says, "'Arise, let us go from here.'" So it appears that the teachings in chapter 15 and 16 at least are happening as Jesus is walking. But you wouldn't typically think that way, I don't think, unless you really caught that last verse. And so Jesus is in the city, they're in the upper room, there in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover, now they're going to make their way over into the Garden of Gethsemane where He's going to pray and ultimately be arrested, which means that He's going to have to go through the Kidron Valley. So if we could throw this picture out, this is a picture we took in Israel not long ago. So from where we are standing would be kind of, this would be... Um, The Mount of Olives, relatively close to what they believe is the Garden of Gethsemane. And so right here, this valley, if I'm remembering this correctly, and if I'm on the right side of the wall, which I believe that I am, this would be the Kidron Valley, and they would have passed through that while Jesus is talking to them. And it is very likely that there were vineyards there and that Jesus was giving them an actual demonstration as he's walking through there, that is the relevance of why he launches into this vine and branch store, because they could have very, uh, very well been standing in a vineyard. And that, to me, just really unlocks a beautiful picture as we consider this text together. Okay, thank you. Does that make sense? You guys are in the setting with me now? You can kind of see it? Okay, good. So Jesus says of Himself, as they're walking through these vineyards perhaps, that He is the true vine. We talked about the significance of this last week. He's not just any vine, He's the true vine. In vineyards, the the imagery of a vine was used all throughout the Old Testament in relation to Israel, and it was always a fruitless vine. It was never a good illustration, but Jesus is the true vine. He came and truly produced fruit for God. He did what Israel failed to do, and ultimately what we couldn't even do. He produced fruit for God, the fruit that God intended. Now, let me say this. I think this is an important point. The fruit that Jesus is mainly speaking of here, I would argue, is the fruit of eternal life. This is the seventh I am statement. You're familiar with the I am statements? We talked a little bit about this last week. He says that, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of those deal with salvation. Those are all teachings, if you will, illustrations of salvation. If you eat the bread of life, you will never hunger again, you'll live forever. If you enter in through the door, you will have eternal life and live forever. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you believe in Him, you will have salvation. You will live forever. And so, in order for this to be consistent with all of the other I Am statements, Jesus is saying that you must abide in the vine if you want to have eternal life. And so, that, that is the number one point that Jesus is making here. Apart from Christ, apart from the vine, you will have no eternal life. You will not live forever with God in paradise and glory. And so I think that, that helps us because there are a lot of applications that people might make from this text that aren't even necessarily appropriate. They're not appropriate applications. And so Jesus is dealing with people who are either in the vine or are not. People who have either trusted Christ for salvation or those who have not. And those who have not really trusted Christ for salvation are cast out. And we talked a little bit about that last week. So what we're not talking about here is a Christian who is struggling, not being as fruitful perhaps as they would hope or somebody else would have expected, and God says, I'm done with you and cut you off and cast you away. That's not what we're talking about here. So you're either in the vine or not. So you must be in the vine. You must believe in Christ. You must trust Him for salvation if you want to live. That is number one. You dig? You follow me? Clear on that? All right. Well, secondarily, this extends to, I would say, other types of fruit. There is a secondary application that can be made here, and I do believe Jesus is making here. Beyond the fruit of eternal life, there's the fruit of character, the fruit of giftedness, the fruit of effectiveness. There are all kinds of things that God wants to bring forth from your life for his glory and for the good of others. God is committed to your fruitfulness. And so I point you back to that phrase, my Father is the vine dresser. The Father is intimately involved in your productivity, in your fruitfulness. It is going to happen. It is happening. It is going to happen. And this is an ongoing kind of fruitfulness here. Why? Because He says, and I would direct you back to the verse there, I think it's verse 2, those who are producing fruit, He will what? prune. He will prune. Why? So that you will produce what? More fruit. More fruit. If you are in the vine and producing fruit, He will prune you so that you will produce even more fruit. Now that of course goes back to that analogy or that picture that I showed you. That's why they were there. They cut the old shoots off to make way for the new. Now, one of the things He also told me is that as the clusters are growing on the vines and they're on the, uh, the, the branches, sometimes they will cut entire clusters of grapes off. They're, they're beautiful, healthy, good grapes, but maybe they're growing too close together and there's too many in a bunch. And in order for the sugar content and all of the clusters to get the kind of nutrients that they need from the vines, sometimes they have to cut certain clusters off to make way for that. And he said that is such a painful thing for him to see because as he looks at it, that's money on the ground. That's money on the ground, but it's necessary. The pruning is necessary for the quality of the fruit. And so pruning is something that God does. And so I would say sometimes there's a fancy word, you may have heard it before, sanctification. Sanctification. God is committed to it. Now, the idea of sanctification is to be separate, to be set apart, to be different, to be holy. That's kind of the idea. And that happens when you trust Jesus for salvation. God sets you apart. You are His. You are not of the world anymore. You are of Christ. You are in Christ. You exist for God's good pleasure and His glory. And you're, you're otherworldly now. You're set apart, different from this world, in the world but not of it. Amen? But then there is this idea of sanctification that is ongoing. and We call it progressive. Progressive sanctification. God is very concerned with making you more and more like His Son Jesus here in this life. We call it maturing or discipleship, growing more and more into the likeness of the one that we love, the one that we profess to follow, Jesus. But you know what? The Father is so determined... That you look like the Son. This has been predestined from before the foundations of the earth. Romans 8.29 says that those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The Father predestined that you be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus. I take comfort in that. Because God was very concerned about that long before I ever existed. He's very concerned. He's very able he is committed to it. The problem is that we are conformed to the likeness of this world. Am I right? We are conformed to the likeness of this world. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word, the, uh, the tense there of conformed the idea is it's happening to us, and we don't even realize it. Just being in this world. It's the the pull is that strong. The force is that strong. We are just being molded, like it or not, into the image of this world. And it's something that we have to fight against actively. And God is committed to conforming us, transforming us, changing us from the mold that this world would have us fit into and making us into the likeness of his son. The Father is committed to conforming us to Jesus. Amen. And that is great news. But you know how He does it oftentimes? He does it through pain. He prunes us. Pruning is painful. It really is. And again, you can look right at that analogy and think, okay, that, yeah, that, that makes sense. As God would prune us, as God would chip away, it's going to be painful. And it's going to come by way of pain. You know, we just don't grow in the good seasons so much. I mean, I wish that God just zapped me and made me mature. That would be great. And I'm sure there's some of that that happens as time goes on, as we continue to walk with Jesus and and mature. But really, true growth comes through pain. It comes through difficulty. It comes through hardship. And it comes through God's loving discipline. God the Father's loving discipline. And Hebrews talks all about this. We need God's loving discipline, and He is able to discipline us perfectly. Why? Because He loves us. And that's what the author of Hebrews is really trying to hit on. We understand the concept of discipline, right? We discipline our children. Why? Because we love them. If we discipline them, it's because we love them, because we want them to know that they cannot run out into the street because we want them to know whatever it is whatever life lesson they need to know discipline is supposed to help train them and instruct them to that end and so it's for love's sake and the bible says if we are the fathers then it follows that he will discipline those whom he loves if he doesn't discipline us that is actually that's a whole other issue if we do not incur the discipline of the father we have to ask do we belong to the father I don't discipline other people's kids. I just don't. You know, sometimes you might want to, you know, but uh, I don't. And the Father is not going to discipline those who aren't His children. And so, the discipline that comes from the Father tells me that it is His love towards me. And He's committed to training me, shaping me, and molding me. And He's a perfect disciplinarian. Sometimes, parents, they get it wrong. They go too, they're too lenient or too heavy-handed or they don't have all the information and they might, they might discipline and it be unjust. The kid didn't deserve it. Never so with the Heavenly Father. He never is too heavy-handed. He's not too lenient. And He has all the facts and he is a, He's able. He is able to discipline us just the way that He needs to discipline us. And so, we are as children to take comfort in the fact that God will prune us, He will grow us by virtue of discipline when we sin against Him, and it grieves His heart, and He has to discipline us. Now, I was reading a book recently called It's Not Fair by a guy named Wayne Mack, and he was talking about uh, how God oftentimes uses difficulty in our lives to work in our hearts and to change us. And he says this, another tool that God uses to mold us into the likeness of our Lord is trial and hardship. It's a tool that the Father uses. He goes on to say, yes, suffering is one of the chief tools in God's tool chest. Through suffering, He shapes us and chisels away all the dross. And through time, we become more like Him. Now, I can just think back to some of the most difficult things I've had to go through as a Christian, and I can see, I can see so clearly how God fast tracked me and molded me and shaped me through that. Now, when I was going through it, it was horrible. It was horrible. I went through things I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And at the time, it seemed hopeless, it seemed like all hope was lost. And I just remember a Christian brother, an older, wiser man, told me that the light will break through again one day. And I didn't believe him. I couldn't really see it. But it did. And then I was able to see how God used that to mature me. And it's so good. It's so worth it when the, when the maturing happens. But when you're going through it, that really brings no comfort in, in a way. I mean, it's, it should I'm just being real, when we're going through crushing things, hey, you're going to be more mature because of it. It doesn't really encourage as it, as it ought, and I'm just being real with you, you know? But when God brings us through the trial, when He brings us through the hardship, when we come through the disciplining or chastening hand of the Lord and we see the fruit of it, it's glorious. I don't pray for more of it. I should. I'm too scared to pray that prayer. I have prayed that prayer before. God, bring it on because I know I need it. And then the heat gets turned up. And then I'm like, what was I thinking about? And my wife told me not too long ago that she prayed that for us. And I was sitting there thinking, what have you done? (laughs) And I was like, don't, you should have consulted me first. Come on. (laughs) And so anyways, uh, we can say that in jest, but it's, you know, it's It's the real deal. Wayne Mack goes on to say, pray that God will cause you not to despise the tools that He uses to conform you to the likeness of His precious Son. Yes, it may be a painful process, it usually is, but the end result is worth it. Sad to say, most people care about alleviating the pain of suffering and then they do finding the purpose of God in it. Now that last little statement there I would want to be very sensitive in saying such a thing because, of course, when we are going through some very serious suffering, obviously relief is something that we desire and we desire for other people, and it's not wrong to pray for that. It's just not. But I think oftentimes God has us there for a reason. There's something He's trying to accomplish, and as we mature in Christ, I think we we start to maybe try to have eyes to see that. And not necessarily or exclusively pray, get me out of this, Lord, but help me, Lord, to withstand this. Help me, Lord, to grow through this. Help me, Lord, to see what You're doing, what You want to do in this. There's a, the English word oftentimes that you see uh, in the Bible, it's endurance. And in the Greek, which the New Testament was originally written in, it's the word hoopamone. It's just a funny sounding word, hoopamone. And my pastor in South Carolina used to call it dancing the hoopamone. And the idea there is it's a crushing weight that is bearing down on your back. And you're going to keep moving forward regardless. That is endurance. That's what it means to endure, right? That is hoopamone. It's not to get out from underneath the crushing weight. It's to endure the crushing weight and allow it to have its effect in your life. To allow it to have its effect in your life because God is pruning us. The Father is very concerned about our fruitfulness in Him. I'm not going to get past these first three verses again. Okay, I'm sorry. But it's, gosh, I mean, we could just talk about that one thing. How relevant is that to everyone in this room? How relevant is this? we know what it is to be pruned. It hurts. We hate it. But that is God's chief mechanism, His chief means whereby He makes you into the image of His Son. So if you are suffering right now, I hope that you can take courage in that. Because many of us in this room are suffering. People listening online, you are suffering. And you may not see it as God's good work in your life. You may think that it's Satan. You may think that it's your own foolish mistakes. And you know, those could be certain components. Sometimes we invite these things into our lives. Sometimes it is spiritual warfare. Satan is just trying to have his way with you. Sometimes it's something that just came into your life unforeseen. Nothing that you, you, could, have not, nothing you could have done to invite it in. But here it is. And God is using it. And it looks very different. In a way, it's all the same, but in a way, it looks very different. Your suffering, my suffering might be totally different circumstances, but we're hurting. We are struggling, and God is working it together for good because He does not waste suffering. He doesn't waste it. It's not pointless. God grants it, sometimes even causes it for our good. Now, I will just say this about the pruning process. We do have a part to play in this. Now, I believe first and foremost, it's God's doing. God prunes us. God grows us. God matures us. But we have a part to play in this. And so, this is a mystery to us. There's a, um, there's a word, it's called an antinomy. And there are all these concepts in the Scriptures that are hard for us to understand how they can both be true at the same time, but they are. They're parallel truths that both stand totally true in and of themselves, but they might seem to clash with one another, but they don't. And so this would be an antinomy of the Scripture, and the question is always phrased as, how much of it is God and how much of it is me? How much of it is God and how much of it is me? Have you ever thought that before? And my answer to that would be yes. Yes. I, I don't know. We don't know. I would tend to say it's a lot more God, almost entirely God, if not completely God. But the Bible definitely calls us to take action. And so let me, let me read this to you. I read this last week, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. It says, For this very reason, make every effort. I want to draw your attention to that phrase, make effort every effort, every effort to add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and self-control steadfastness, and to steadfastness godliness, and to godliness brotherly affection, and to brotherly affection love. These are things that we want to heap on to our Faith, if you will, we want to make every effort to increase in these things. In virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. These are things that we need to make every effort to grow in, Peter says. And he says that if these qualities are yours and you are increasing in them, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, if we are very concerned about having these things and growing in these things, we're not going to backslide. That's kind of the idea here. You will not fall away. You will not backslide. You won't turn to the left or the right if you are set on having these things and growing in these things. How could you? How could you backslide or, or sidestep if it is the intention of your heart to make these things the things that you are serious about pursuing and growing in. And he says that if you are, if you're in your life committed by God's grace and God's Spirit to growing in these things, you will not be ineffective in your service to the Lord, and you will not be unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea there of knowledge is relational knowledge. That's the idea. So it's not just an understanding about Jesus. Through your relationship with Jesus, you will not be unfruitful. Amen? Amen. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 it says therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not in my presence but much more in my absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. You got to exercise that. You got to make every effort. You got to give it all that you have to grow. You have a part to play. You got to get in the game. But I love this verse 13 it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So God is the one working in you both to desire and to have the ability to do these things, to work out your salvation, to grow in your relationship with God. Let's look at uh, verse 4. This would be the source, and we'll kind of close with this. The source of our fruitfulness is in Christ. The source of our fruitfulness is in Christ. Verse 4, "...abide in me and I in you." As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I am in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from Me you can do nothing. A shoot severed from the vine can produce nothing. And Jesus said that you cannot bear fruit by yourself. We cannot will ourselves to be better. Apart from Christ's work in our hearts and our lives, it's not going to happen. You know, I was reading about Benjamin Franklin. He set out to attain to moral perfection. He just determined and purpose that that is the best life that one could live, and that would be a life of moral perfection. And so he set out, he came up with a list of 13 things that he thought would, uh, would you know amount to a moral perfection, and he was going to give a week to each one of these things, and set out to be perfect in each one of those things each week. And uh, he didn't ever get there. I think he realized the more that he tried that, the more stuff he failed in other areas, and, you know, that's a work of the flesh. I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to take these things right here, I'm going to make my list, and I'm going to keep that list perfectly. That's, uh, That's rule following, that's keeping a list, that's a standard that you create for yourself, and you can't even keep it. We can't. We can't keep it. The good news is, is Christ kept it for us. There is a standard. There is a list. God's standard. And we are crushed under the weight of that list. We are crushed under the weight of our own failure and imperfection. But Christ alone, the Son of God, has kept God's law perfectly, flawlessly, and He did it in our stead. Amen? He did it for us so that in Him we have His perfect righteousness, and then we can bear fruit for the glory of God because of our position in Christ. We don't try to bear fruit so that we can get God's blessing and have Christ. We have Christ, and in Him we have God's blessing, and God is pleased because He looks upon His Son, Jesus. And God doesn't, you know, I've often said that when God sees me, when God sees you, He sees the perfection of His Son and says, you're innocent. But it's, as I was thinking about this this week, I was reading some theology on this, and it's not just God looks at it and says, okay, God looks at it and He is delighted. He is glorified. He is so pleased in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. He's thrilled. He's thrilled. It's His Son in whom He is well pleased and it is His perfect work finished there on the cross that is at work in us and God looks at that and God is thrilled. He sees the glorious work of His Son Jesus in our stead and God is thrilled. That's beautiful. That's glorious. God is honored and it's all His Son. So apart from union with Christ there is no eternal life If you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you don't trust Him, take all of your trust off of yourself and put it on Jesus Christ. Take all of your trust and your hope off of anything else in this life that you think would get you into heaven. Forsake that and put all of your trust on Jesus, on His merits, on His perfection, on His accomplishments on His death, burial, and resurrection. Substitutionary. Apart from that, there can be no life, there can be no fruit, there can be no salvation. Apart from Christ, there is no pleasing God. Romans 8, verse 7 says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We cannot please God by doing better. Apart from Christ. and you've heard me say this a thousand times, and I'll say it again. I used to say to myself, when I get my life together, I will come to God. It doesn't work that way. You cannot please God. And that's the very thing that Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 64.6. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. What Isaiah is saying here is that if we try to come to God based on our own goodness, based on our own merits... And then I say, God, look at all of these good things that I do. Look at all of these good things that I do. Isn't this glorious? God looks at that and says, that is a filthy garment. That's a filthy rag. It's disgusting to God. He's not pleased by it. But if we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and we have the fruit of eternal life, and then we begin to develop and cultivate the fruits of the Spirit in His name, God looks at that and says, Amen. That is wonderful. That is the work of my Son, and I'm pleased. It's the work of my Holy Spirit, and it's glorious. And it only comes through being in Christ. He's the source, and He alone is the source. Jesus says the person that is in that state bears much fruit. The person who worships Jesus, obeys Jesus, serves Jesus, loves Jesus, the person that is in that place abides in Christ, and they bear much fruit. And as I said before, at the end of the day, it really is the Lord who is the source and not ourselves. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians verse 3, "'Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed.'" Into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we behold the face of God in His Word, as we behold the goodness of the Lamb of God, as we commune with Him in worship and fellowship, in prayer, in Scripture as we commune with the Father, as we behold Him, as we reflect on and meditate on the Gospel and its implications, as we seek not to just read the Bible, but obey and apply the Bible, we abide in Christ and commune with Him. As we behold His face, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. 2 Peter 1 says that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His glory and excellence. We have everything that we need to be fruitful. We have everything that we need through our relationship with Jesus Christ. All things that pertain to life and godliness through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? We can be fruitful. I would submit in Christ you are fruitful. It's not possible that you're not fruitful. The Father is committed to this very thing. He is committed to our fruitfulness. We may not be where we want to be. I talked about this last week. But be patient. Fruit comes in its season. Fruit comes in its season. We can't rush it. We have to let God do what God is going to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love You. We give You praise. We give You thanks that You're the vine dresser. Lord, it's our desire to be fruitful. It's our desire to bring You much glory. And we recognize that apart from Christ, we cannot do one single thing that brings You joy or pleasure. But thank You that we're in Christ. For all who have called upon the name of the Lord for salvation, all who have seen their sinful state and recognized that they were going to be under the judgment and the wrath of Almighty God, who have fled into the arms of Christ by faith, all who have called upon His name for salvation and have life in His name will bear much fruit. Thank You. Thank You, Lord. We cling to You. We cling to that promise and to that hope. Make us more fruitful. Or grow us. Make us more effective in kingdom work. Make us more effective in the lives of others, those around us, those in the body of Christ, those outside these walls. Lord, help us. Apart from You, we can do nothing. So please, have Your perfect work in us. Make us fruitful for Your joy and for Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.